You're listening to the Northside Christian Church Podcast. Find out more about Northside by visiting us online at northsideweb.org. Good morning, Northside. We are in week number three of four weeks. We're studying the book of Philippians. There's four chapters, so we've been cruising through every a chapter a week. So today we're on number three, and the whole book just exudes joy. And what really is so remarkable about this is the Apostle Paul is in prison, facing maybe a likely death sentence. He's later he's killed by Nero. And, and you wonder, it's like, how can you exude that much joy? So we've been looking at it, and the first chapter talked about he thought of other people. Instead of wallowing in self-pity in his situation, he was thankful of other people. He particularly thankful of their partnership in the gospel. Then chapter 2, he talks about humility. It's not about us all the time. It's about others. And then he gave the example of Jesus Christ in humility, how he came to this earth. He was selfless. He gave up his, his title to be with God. He came to this earth. He, he served. And then he offered his, his life as a sacrifice. And, and so if, if we would emulate that, then we'd have more joy. So today, he again talks about joy, like over and over and over again. However, in chapter 3, it is the deepest part of the teaching in the book of Philippians. And even though you may exude joy and have a lot of joy in your life, that does not mean that you don't have to deal with some difficult situations. And that's exactly what happens here in Philippians chapter 3. So let's start off at verse 1. He says, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. He says that again. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. And so, you know, how many, you know sometimes when you tell somebody and you have to tell them again and again and again, and, and, you know, it's like, well, repetition is the key to learning. And if you really love somebody, then you don't mind doing it over and over and over again until they learn the lesson. And, and particularly, I'm thinking like your children, and you, you want to teach them so that they learn to do that. And, and so repetition is the key to learning. So there's some things that he says in this chapter is just incredibly important. Here's number one. Be careful where you place your faith. I think a lot of us struggle with that, and I think you'll understand it by the time we talk about it. But you be careful where you place your faith. Um, things aren't always like they seem. And sometimes things happen that you don't certainly expect. For instance, this girl, her name was Stephanie. She was sitting in her living room watching the Food Network. And all of a sudden, a SWAT team busts in her door, you know, blazing guns. And it's like, what in the world is going on? Grandpa said, you know, the door was open. You just could have come on in. She was, uh, she was targeted as what they called swatting. Somebody was targeting her, and they used the, her open Wi-Fi connection, and somehow the, uh, making threats against the, the police and their families, and so they, they swat and brought it in. Now, you think you're safe in your living room. It's like, well, wait a minute here. Uh, all of a sudden, it was different for her. Um, so, so sometimes you think you're in the right place, but maybe, just maybe you aren't, and that's really what he's talking about here in the first few verses. We think it's spiritual maturity. But maybe not so much. Look at the next couple of verses, beginning in verse 2. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. 
And so he starts off this passage talking about false teachers, and, and, and he calls them dogs. Now, in our country, we think of dogs as pets, you know, uh, almost like family members. But, but he was talking more about like a wild pack of dogs that would run the streets, they would eat garbage, they would sometimes attack people, and, and, and he calls them dogs. In fact, the Jewish people also would call anybody that wasn't a Jew would call them a dog, very derogatory term. And so he, he calls these false teachers um, dogs. And so even though he's, he's exuding this joy, he's dealing with a very difficult subject right here. He, uh, they were filthy, they were unclean, they were dangerous. And, um, and what he talks about here is um, really circumcision, mutilators of the flesh. And they all thought that they were all okay because they were keeping the law and they were circumcised and, and they, think they're, they're, they think they're right with God, like spiritual maturity. And so you've got to be really careful where you place your faith. It says, if anybody has reason to boast, Paul had more. And here's what he does. Uh, he mentions several things. First of all, a ritual. He was circumcised on the eighth day in according with the Jewish law. Um, and that kind of meant that he was saved. He was, he was okay. Uh, he talked about his rank. Uh, the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. Um, he was blood-born citizen of the covenant of Israel. And specifically, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. And in the territory of Benjamin was the holy city of Jerusalem. And out of Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, came their first king. He talked about his race. He was a Hebrew, but he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. So he's not only talking about his race, not only his lineage, he's also talking about his language. Because to be a real special Jew, you would keep your old native tongue, which was the Hebrew language. Um, he talked about his religion. He was a Pharisee. That is the strictest sect of Judaism. They sought to the, obey the law. They would, uh, down to the nth degree, they would tithe of their table spices. I mean, that's how strict that they got. Um, and so he, he persecuted Christians because of that because they didn't keep the Mosaic law. And he also talked about his righteousness. And as far as his righteousness was concerned, he was faultless. So outward obedience, it's like, man, he had it all together. He was really spiritually mature. But remember, the point is, you be careful where you place your faith. Because you know what Jesus called them? He called them hypocrites. Here's what he says in Mark chapter 7. You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Then verse 13, he says, Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. If you back up to Matthew chapter 16, Be careful, Jesus said to them, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You see, what we think sometimes is spiritual maturity really may not be spiritual maturity. And basically, even though they were doing righteous things, he said, you guys are just a bunch of hypocrites. And so he warns everybody else, hey, don't be like that. Don't be a hypocrite. And the truth is, sometimes we can look at somebody and think, man, they are a fine, upstanding church member, and they're a hypocrite. Let me give you an illustration. I'll even give you his name. Don't worry, he's not sitting in here. Um, his name is Jesse James. You ever heard of him? He was one of the most notorious criminals in the old wild, wild west, right? He, uh, for a period of 15 years, Jesse James and his gang committed 26 holdups where they made off with approximately $200,000. That's a long time ago, so it had been a lot more money these days. But in that, he killed at least 17 men. Uh, so he's one of the West's most notorious outlaws. Uh, and yet, very few people know, he was an avid churchgoer. Did you know that? In fact, on one robbery, he killed a man. And then after that, he was baptized in Kearney Baptist Church in Kearney, Missouri. Then he killed another man, a bank cashier. And so he joined the church choir. 
and taught him singing. He loved to go to church, although he couldn't always make it. Sometimes he had a train to catch. Um, <laughs> but you know, if you didn't know any better, you would think that this guy is a fine, upstanding Christian, good church member. He was baptized. He sang in the choir. He taught him singing. He was fairly regular in church attendance. But he was also a thief and a murderer, a, a hypocrite. And I think that happens a lot in church, maybe not to, to that extent, but where we say one thing and we do something else, and we don't really live like what we pretend to live sometimes on Sunday. There was a survey done a few years ago, top 10 reasons why people don't go to church. You know what the number one reason is? Because of hypocrites. The outside world looks at the church and thinks, well, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. Do you know of, of the five major things that Jesus talked about, hypocrisy was one of them. There was another survey, survey taken several years ago. And what was interesting about this survey is it was done by People Magazine. And uh, they ranked the seriousness of sins. And did you know they ranked, they ranked hypocrisy higher than homosexuality, living together, and abortion? Uh, isn't that interesting? Um, now, we, we probably don't have the same kind of problems that, that the Pharisees have and, and, and some of the things that they did, but, but we still struggle with that in some ways or another. Um, and, and sometimes I think it's because we not really, really capture what God wants us to do. Let me illustrate it this way. Suppose you go into a restaurant and you order a steak. When you order a steak, 20 minutes kind of go by, you eat your salad, and they bring out a big bowl of spaghetti. And the waiter says, man, this is the best spaghetti you're ever going to have in your life. Now, are you going to be happy about that? No, you're not going to be happy about that because you ordered a steak. You had your, your heart set on a steak. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes I feel that's the way it's, it's happened in the church. Um, Jesus Christ has specifically said, here is what I want you to do. And through our own arrogance, rather than studying the scriptures and finding out what God is commanding us to do, we, we decide, well, this is what we, we think would, would work better uh, in that regard. Um, you know, we, we, um, we have been influenced by the outside world and what we think we want, what we think other people want, what, what we think is going to work best for us, and then that's kind of what the church does. And we all, everybody gets caught up in that. Um, and so let's do a little exercise here. You don't have to answer out loud, but think in your mind. List all the things that you think people want out of a church. Okay? So think about that. Now, let me, uh, let me just give you some of these. Um, uh, really good church service. We want strong, specific, age-related youth groups and youth ministries. They want a certain style, volume, and length of music. Um, a, well, a, good, a good sermon. Okay, sorry, do the best I can, okay? Um, they, they, want, they want good conveniences like good parking, clean restrooms, clean church building. They want coffee. They want church, they want child care. So, so all the things that you think that you want out of a church, okay? Now, what do you think God wants out of a church? So as I was thinking about this, I thought God gave us commands, all right? And it didn't take too long. I came up with several of them. Let me just read those for you. These are the commands that God has given the church. John chapter 15. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Acts 2.38. 
Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 11, about the Lord's Supper. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Galatians chapter 6, carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 6, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this same way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. James chapter 1, look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. I mean, there's a lot of commands that he gives us. Now, let me ask you a question. What do you think people would be more upset with if, if the church didn't provide things on the first list or they didn't provide the things on the second list? You know, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus gave a parable about this master he was going to go away. And so he gave his, certain, his servants certain specific tasks to do. He was going to go away and then he was going to come back. And he expected those tasks to be done. And uh, what do you think that, that he would do when those tasks came back and, and they weren't done? You know, we shrug our shoulders at things like that. But you know, Jesus is serious and I think he's coming back soon uh, as you see the, the downfall of our culture. Now, honoring traditions made the Pharisees feel like they were obeying God, made them feel like they were better than other people, that they were more religious, more spiritually mature. And I think many of us have kind of come the same way, that, that, that we've honored our traditions more than we've honored Scripture and what we want rather than, and it bothers more people whether or not uh, uh, the preacher wears a tie than whether the gospel's being preached. In fact, I remember one time a guy went out and he grabbed me right there and he says, you quit wearing a tie. Don't ever quit wearing a tie. You can tell I'm not wearing a tie. I'm a rebel at heart. He no longer comes to this church. I think, I want to say, dude, your heart is not right. Man looks on the outside. God looks on the inside. We're more upset about, uh, you know, if we had to cancel nursery because, because uh, we couldn't get enough workers than we would be if we canceled the Lord's Supper. I mean, there's on and on things like that. Um, we get upset at those things um, uh, about the, the, the music rather than whether or not we're making disciples or, or um, taking care of the widows and orphans or carrying each other's burdens. You see, America is, is uh, affected by American consumer mentality. And it kind of saddens me when I go to church groups and church meetings and they talk more about branding and marketing and changing your name and entertainment and the experience rather than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. I think, man, that's what we ought to be doing. There's an old quote in the church world, and it says, what you win them with is what you win them to. So if you win them to gimmicks and you win them to entertainment, then that's exactly what it is. And here's the problem. The more you focus on giving people what they want the more critical they become when they don't get what they want. It's like, man, it is a vicious cycle. Most of us make our decisions based on what we think is going to bring us pleasure. That is our homes, our jobs, our, our cars, our clothes, our food, our churches. It's the same thing. And you know it's all rooted in pride. 
Pride is one of those really secret little things. It's like, you know, everybody else can tell that you have pride except you yourself. You know, it's kind of like having bad breath, right? It's like, do you have bad breath? <laughs> you can't tell if you have your bad breath, but other people around you can tell you have bad breath, all right? And so we take pride in our moral purity. We take pride in our faithfulness. We take pride in our devotional life, our church attendance, our doctrinal correctness. Um, and somehow through that, we think that we're better than other people. And you know what Paul says? Watch out. You be careful where you place your faith. So you want real joy? Here's where it comes from. He goes on. Put no confidence in the flesh. Place your faith in Christ. And so he's just listed all these accolades that he has done. And he says, you know, you want real joy. It's not going to come from that. It's going to come from placing your faith in Jesus Christ. That's where the answer is. So let's go on in verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith Paul says I consider all that rubbish just just to know Christ and he suffered a lot he he was probably disowned by his family his religious group he was beaten and flogged and later would be beheaded by Nero uh, he gave up a lot But he says he considers that all rubbish just to know Christ. In fact, look at what he says in verse 10. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of the resurrection and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. That's the key to spiritual maturity. I want to know Christ. I don't just know about Christ. I want to know Christ like in a relationship. And if you're going to have a relationship where you get to know somebody, you have to spend time with them. And I would hope that we wouldn't want to spend time with Jesus Christ until that we begin to think like Jesus thinks and that we begin to do things like Jesus would do things and that we would, um, uh, our heart would break for things that break Jesus's heart. I think that's the real key to spiritual maturity. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, if you love me, keep my commands. The very next chapter, he says, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. So be very careful where you place your faith because it's not going to be in your flesh. It's going to be placing your faith in Christ. Let's move to the third. He then challenges us. He says, it challenges to forget the past and pursue the future. And we probably all have a struggle with this for various reasons, good and bad. Look at what he says in the next couple of verses. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold for that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. He said, I haven't already attained all this. And you know, you would think somebody like the Apostle Paul, this spiritual giant, you think he'd already obtained all that stuff. No, he's not there either. So just like us, we're, we're just not there. It's, we're not perfect, but, but we, we strive for that. So, so you got to forget the past. Um, and so just like Jesse James and that hypocrite, um, look at this picture, this quote. A person's character is sown through their actions in life. 
not where they sit on Sunday. You know, I, uh, I press on. That's what Paul meant. Put his hand to the plow and refused to look back. Look at Luke chapter 9. Jesus replied, no one looks, puts his hand to the plow and looks back as fit for their service in the kingdom of heaven. Paul says, I made it my own. I haven't really obtained all this, but, but I'm making it my own. And he says two things. He said, we need to forget the past. There are some things that Paul did. Uh, he persecuted Christians. He murdered them. All because he felt like he was doing the right thing. And he says, you know, sometimes you do such rotten things. It's like, how can you even forgive yourself? But Paul made a choice. He chose. It's like, I can't, I can't dwell on the past. I can't do anything about it. I forget the past. You know, we have a choice too. There's some things that we have done. There's things that maybe we had a bad experience and, and we can't change. But there's things that roll around in our mind that keep us from doing what we ought to do now and in the future. And, and Paul says, forget all that stuff. You know, forget it and move on. The book of Jeremiah, Old Testament, he says, For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. It's no matter what it is. You can't change the past. Forget it. Ask God to forgive you and move on on and he will never forget it again so you got to forget um and i don't think it's just the bad i think sometimes we have to forget the good um uh, there was an old song some of you might remember it a guy by the name of uh, uh he was kind of fairly well known bruce springsteen you ever heard him he sang this song glory days about a guy who couldn't quit thinking about all the fun that he had back in high school and in that song he says time slips away and leaves you with nothing but boring stories of glory days. You know, and there's people that they spend all their life thinking about, man, the good old days, back when they were in high school or they were in college or when they first got married or when their kids were little or, or you know, they're, they're all living that. It, people do that in the church too. Oh, I remember when so-and-so was here. She was such a good singer. I remember when pastor so-and-so was here. He preached the best sermons I ever heard and he was so on fire for God. We do that all the time. And sometimes I think, Maybe we ought to forget some of the good too because that keeps us from maybe pressing on in the future because a good past doesn't necessarily mean a meaningful future. So Paul says, forget the past. I, I really like this quote. I'm sure you've seen it from C.S. Lewis. He says, you can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. And so Paul tells us to pursue the future Press on for the prize. Look what he says in verse 14. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Press on. When you see a goal in front of you, when that goal is so huge, so big, so, so worthy, you will press on. Let me give you a, 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 an instance. It was uh, last month. Uh, many of you know every January we take a group of people to Mexico on a mission trip, you're all invited. Strong backs, weak minds, that's all we need, okay? Um, but uh, we had about 18 people going, and uh, we had 11 coming out of Cleveland, then we had people out of Cincinnati and Knoxville and, and various other places around the states that they're all connected with us. And, and so we were getting ready to go, and there were storms that went through Dallas. So we get a text about 7 o'clock that night that your flight tomorrow morning at, I don't know, it's 5.45, 6 o'clock in the morning, your flight has been canceled. It's like, great, what am I going to do? Because we have our missionaries driving two hours to come and pick us up. we got to all get there as a group. But the ones out of Lexington and Knoxville and some of those other places, their flight wasn't canceled. 
It's like, how can they go through Dallas and we can't go through Dallas? But anyway, so, so it's like, I've got to try to get all the group there together because I'm the leader of the group. That's part of my responsibility. So I try to press on, right? I was on the phone with our travel agent and our uh, American Airlines representative. I had to go through a travel agent because they would answer his phone. They wouldn't answer mine, right? Um, I was on the phone from 8.15 Friday night till after midnight. I was on hold. I would talk to them. They'd go on hold. It was back and forth and back and forth from 8.15 till after midnight. And uh, um, finally, about probably 11.30, I'm on this group chat through Messenger with most everybody in our group. And it's like I'm trying to keep them up to date with what's going on because we're all got to get ready and fly out the next morning, right? So about 10.30, 11 o'clock or so, um, American Airlines comes back on and says, listen, we cannot get you out in the morning at all. Uh, the best we can do is, is sometime in the afternoon. So I emailed all our group and said, look, we can't get out in the morning. What we'll do is, is we'll get back with you. We'll let you know what's happening tomorrow uh, morning sometime. We'll fly out tomorrow afternoon. Okay, you all just go to bed. Huh. Some of them went to bed. Because after midnight, American Airlines says, okay, we got it. Five of you are flying out tomorrow at 6 a.m. It's like, wait a minute. They're already in bed. Right now, we're only talking about three or four hours before they have to be at the airport. It's like, okay, well, first of all, they want to fly me to, out of Pittsburgh. It's like, that ain't happening because it was after midnight and flying out of Pittsburgh at 6 o'clock. That's not going to happen. So anyway, so I said, okay, five people already got their tickets. The rest of us are going to go out in the afternoon. So I, try, I start trying to call everybody. These five people are flying out. Hey, look, I know you're already in bed, but you got to get up and you got to get the airport by like 4.30 so you can fly out at 6 in the morning. And I got a hold of two of them. Now, have you, you feel real comfortable calling somebody after midnight? No, probably not. Okay, so I call them after midnight. Two of them answered the phone. Three of them didn't answer the phone. And so the one I got a hold of, can you get a hold of so-and-so and I'll get a hold of the other two. So I call the other two, I call the other two. Well, finally I call the one guy's girlfriend and says, hey, can you get him out of bed? And so she started calling, she started texting. We texted and we called and we texted and we called and texted. You know, on and on and on and on and on. And finally it's like one o'clock in the morning. It's like they're going to miss their plane. So what am I to do? Press on, right? That's the goal. I got to get everybody there. So you know what I do? One o'clock in the morning, I'm driving down the interstate, going to their house to try to find a house that I don't really know where it is in the dark at one o'clock in the morning and bang on somebody's door. And I just hope that I get the right door, <laughs> right? I don't want to be shot, okay? I banged on their door until they woke up. The other guy, he banged on his door, wouldn't wake up. So he went around and banged on his bedroom window. House. We live by faith, okay, on these trips. <laughs> Bottom line, we got everybody up, and, uh, and they all made that plane the next morning. Of course, I learned two lessons. Number one, if you're going to go out on a mission trip the very next morning and you've got a group of people, do not turn off your cell phone, okay? Number two, if you're going out in the morning, do not take NyQuil before you go to bed, okay? <laughs> it's like, come on. Anyway, so we got there. And, and you press toward the goal to get there because the goal is worthy to be, get there. And then coming back, by the way, coming back, I have another story too. We're coming back on it. Guess who gets sick? I, in fact, as I packed up, I looked at my bottle of Pepto. I didn't even open my bottle of Pepto. This is the best Mexico I've ever had. I didn't even get sick. Ha! Spoke too soon because in the flight going in down to, I think it was in Guadalajara, Dallas, somewhere. I don't know. I got sicker than I have been in years. There's a few things that you do not want to do at 30,000 feet in the air, okay? And, and especially in some of those little bathrooms that they have, you just don't want to do that at all. And so I set some new records, and uh, I, I apologize to everybody on the plane. Uh, it was as, everybody's like this to me. It's like, get away. But you know what? I'm sitting there thinking, I can't be sick. 
because I have to get home and I have to very next day meet with a family that just lost their husband and their dad. It's like, I, I can't get sick. And so guess what? You press on. And thankfully, by God's grace, that next morning I was okay. But, but when the goal is that worthy, you press on. And when we understand the goal of heaven is so wonderful, it doesn't matter what circumstances that we have here on this earth, you press on. In fact, look at how he closes this chapter. In verse 20 and 21, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from this, uh, from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body the, by the power that enables him even subject all things to himself. You know what he's saying? Because our hope is in heaven, it doesn't matter what happens here. Because if I just know Christ and I know that my hope is in heaven, I'm going to press toward that and I'm going to be filled with joy because I know the reward that's going to happen. So no matter what happens on this earth, you just know that no matter what happens, remember the prize. And when you remember the prize, you'll be filled with joy. Let's pray. God Almighty, we need your joy. And it really is only going to come from Jesus Christ. Um, God, and in some ways I feel like we need to kind of individually and corporately repent because we all get caught up in that pride thing where we think we're pretty spiritual and maybe even better sometimes than other people because of our church attendance or because of what we do or because of those kind of things like like the apostle Paul did but uh, our righteousness is nothing more than filthy rags in your sight it is about Jesus Christ and so father I pray that we all we all want to know Christ know the power of his resurrection so that somehow we too may attain power from the dead because our citizenship is in heaven fill us with joy remind us that no matter what happens we need to remember the prize in Jesus holy name we pray amen let's be standing as we sing